Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. Welcome to History of Sexy Episode 2. Welcome also to you to History Episode. <laughs> right? No. <laughs> history is sexy. Is episode it too two. sexy for you? It's way too sexy for me in my current <laughs> mental state. <laughs> so, I'm Emma, um, and I'm a historian. I am Janina, and I am not so much that that's okay yeah. neither of us know anything really about what we're talking about today so no, it doesn't I, really matter i learned about what we're talking about today in high school as a prelude to something else i see i never learned about it i only did between the wars oh. so we did 1918 to 1939 right um and skipped the interesting bits <laughs> great <laughs> what some might call see um, i did my the, like the module I think it was called at the time that I did was the causes of World War Two, so oh uh, yes, because so World between War I the wars. was one of the causes. So we looked a little bit at World War One, but only yes. as a as a leading point. Yeah, you could have basically called between the wars the causes of World War Two, um, mm. but no one ever taught me the causes of World War One. Um, and until fairly recently, virtually everything I knew about World War One came from the fourth series of Blackadder. That is fair. Um, <laughs> I also had the books of Bodhi Taney, which started in World War One, and uh-huh. um, I don't recommend them. She's like a Christian romance novelist. You're not, you know, they're very. You know what they are about based on that statement yeah um and um, in addition i knew about world war one from the last book in the anne of green gables se- series rilla of ingleside which is fair. set during world war one so a lot more than me really because mine was just blackadder in a trench I, mean, um, I feel like that's probably the best yeah blackadder is always the best teacher he is he taught me everything i never needed to know about the tudors <laughs> and the plantagenets are they plantagenets and the <laughs> Uh, George the Third, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. also World War One. I. I knew all of British history right there. From <laughs> don't need to know anything no, more. Li- you literally <laughs> don't. No. So we're talking about World War One today because I finally got around to watching Wonder Woman a solid year after everybody else, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it discovered that it has a really weird portrayal of World War One. In that, rather than considering what World War One was actually about, they just seem to have the Germans be Nazis who own slaves and mm-hmm. are evilly creating evil gases with a kind of masked evil lady. Um, and the British are kind of stiff upper lipped and all called Sir Patrick something mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or are working class Tommies in a trench yeah. being terribly oh, try, desperately trying to help those poor people. Yeah, just getting down to it, what needs to be done because we're British. Yeah, and this infuriated my partner so much that he refused to watch the rest of it because <laughs> uh, <laughs> he actually knows about things. But it was just kind of interesting to me in that it was, I felt that it was, it was an interesting visual shorthand so we knew who we were, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys to yeah. have the bad guys be Nazis, basically, and to use a lot of World War Two imagery in World War One. Yeah. And if I knew anything about World War One, mm-hmm. it was that it was not Nazis. Yes, the Nazis weren't invented yet in World War One. They were not. Um, as we both know from Between the Wars, they were <laughs> potentially a result of, but <laughs> they were not yet it, invented. It is an interesting thing that happens in Wonder Woman, and this is going to mildly spoil it a little bit, for which I'm sorry. Yeah. Or you can skip forward a minute or two if you've not seen it and you want to. Because it does try to interrogate that a little bit. Because the premise of the movie is that Wonder Woman has grown up on her Greek island, beautiful uh, mm-hmm. Themyscira, I think it's called, her little paradise, being told that war is always caused by Ares, the god of war. And what he does is he finds a nation and he poisons them against another nation and they become the evil army that is being manipulated by Ares. Uh, and that good people have to fight them off. And that's what she believes that war is, that there is always an evil side and always a good one. Mm-hmm. And that's the attitude that she carries into World War One when she comes across it, which is sort of confirmed by the way that Steve, Trevor, the American soldier she meets, talks about it, and the British soldier she comes across talk about it as the Germans must be defeated because they're evil and they're doing evil things. But at the end of the movie, she meets up with Ares and finds he was actually one of the British men he is actually a diplomat Um, yeah and um he what he says to her is 
I never have to do anything to make people more. They just do it. Yeah. Um, and all I do is tiny little changes to push them a little bit further in one way or another, but they're always going to fight because that's what people do. Um, and they could have interrogated properly at this point, but then they just had a boss fight, which I think uh, was, a sh- <laughs> was a real shame. Um, yes. And they never really... They never really faces up to the fact that the German soldiers they've been fighting are also just people. Yeah, and I do think this is one of those things with comic book movies and why you should never rely on comic book movies to act like they're not there to teach you anything. But which doesn't mean they can't. Yeah, it doesn't mean they don't have a certain amount of ethical responsibility to mm. attempt to not massively rep- misrepresent stuff. But and and to be fair, Thor Ragnarok did make some pretty powerful comments on colonialism and whitewashing history and absolutely in the middle of all the fun and laughs yeah and one of the her experiences when she goes into the trenches and this was the point at which connor lost his mind was (laughs) when she goes into the trenches and everyone is kind of on the british side is very injured and sad and there's a poor civilian woman of non-specific nationality going they're taking slaves on the other side and then she has to she goes we have to go and help these people by just destroying the german soldiers who are therefore Mm -hmm. portrayed as inexplicably slave owning and just causing damage and not taking any yeah and so revealing that they're actually the bad guy is the british guy doesn't really undermine that Uh, like you've already set that up that all of the germans are somehow and this is not something necessarily that because we've now done like lots of looked at a lot of british propaganda about the germans and i feel like a lot of british propagandists of the 1910s would probably have got along with wonder woman very well and been like yeah no they are fundamentally evil in every way (laughs) this is the thing because it's not just wonder woman is it like this is a common thing when people think about these wars the Germans were bad. The Germans were the, the bad Americans guys and they started and the a war. the rest of the Allies were good and heroes and sort of the European Allies were like the weak, weak and had to be protected. And yeah. And that's, then... It, that's but, how we picture it and it's interesting to look at why that has happened in the first place and why it has so palpably continued yes. to now. And it is a very strong Germany were the bad guys with capital B, capital G. Yeah. And in reading a lot of different accounts because the like accounts of how world war one began are very very long very very (laughs) detailed and they all tend to have a slightly different emphasis on whose eventual fault it was but i read quite a few which were basically blaming it all on germany Um, and they were almost all american (laughs) essentially blaming it all on the idea that germany was could germany was causing a problem and if their germany hadn't existed then it, everything probably would have been fine which was quite interesting in that it is a putting all of the blame on one power amongst about five massive powers who all had to be involved for world war one to start yes so shall we talk a little bit through like as quickly as is humanly possible because <laughs> fuck me janina it is boring it's very, very boring. As it turns out, the reason that nobody has ever taught why World War One started is because you could have he- essentially keep going back for as long as you want to see when the beginning is. So you could keep going back to like, and then in 1640, um, mm-hmm. there was a war between the French and the English. <laughs> and also because there's about 400 very complicated diplomatic issues between five great powers and it's unbearably tedious <laughs> yeah it's it's really really boring it's so boring think, and like, complicated the two worst things yeah so in the broadest of brushstrokes because let's get past it because it sucks okay broadest of brushstrokes being fully aware that we are overlooking a myriad complex issues to do with all kinds of different problems look somewhere else if you want something that gets into all details this is it's not what we're here for that's not sexy it's not sexy it's boring right in two minutes janina go uh so basically in the few hundred years before this europe had been very tumultuous going from tiny little micro governments and city states and, and things to becoming nations and there was a lot of tension between the idea of ethnic nationalism and geographical nationalism which ended up with borders being drawn in places where people did not want them to be drawn including the emergence of germany as a country from what mm-hmm. was originally the state of prussia and then germany led almost single-handedly by bismarck fought and 
diplomated, <laughs> diplomacied its way into creating the country of Germany as we now know it by stealing bits from Austria and stealing bits from elsewhere and eventually stealing um, Alsace-Lorraine from France in a war and created Germany as a country which had never previously existed and was now a super powerful, quite big country that had pissed everyone around it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but had some pretty key alliances as well. So... Then we get to a point because one another one of these borders, which wasn't ha- wasn't wasn't super great for everyone, was Austria Hungary, which involved a Serbian population that weren't like were kind of shat on. Yeah, Austria Hungary is one of those very 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 old empires which used to be incredibly powerful and ruled pretty much been in charge of Europe for a long time and has now interbred itself into not like everyone has severe mental health problems and a lot of people have a quite severe physical problems as a result of some very small gene pools and they are primarily concerned with their own business and have failed to rule their empire properly for a long time they're mostly getting involved in like wild murder suicides and just trying to steal children from each other and murdering each other it's all quite good fun but what they're not doing is paying attention to the ethnic and nationalist crises that are occurring within what are technically their borders yeah so then we get serbia wanting to liberate uh slavs from austria hungary and one of them hit on the plot to assassinate the archduke franz ferdinand to aggravate austria into paying attention to them basically which i mean did work (laughs) yeah unfortunately what happens is that then everybody and it seems like a lot of european powers because you've got russia who is a massive power you've got austria hungary who are still technically a power you've got germany who are a new power and who think that they should be as powerful and as good as britain and france you have britain who have the biggest navy in the whole wide world and are growing towards being the biggest empire that has ever existed and everybody wants to be the biggest and the best and therefore sees anybody else having literally anything as (laughs) being a threat to them and everybody is kind of itching to take the others down essentially on the one hand they don't want a war because they know it'll be pretty bad but on the other hand everybody wants to take everybody else down a peg or two and show how great they are yeah so when this happens, it kicks off all sorts of negotiations and like threats of war, which are then attempted to be brought down. But basically everyone starts ignoring every other, everyone else's conditions and ultimatums. So the Serbian attempts to negotiate with Austria-Hungary fails and they declare, I, I don't actually know who declared war first. <laughs> One of them does. Um, it, it ends up being an, a war between Russia and Germany. Well, this because is, this Russia is, is... I find really interesting because we have this bit where Austria and Austria-Hungary is in conflict with Serbia, and there's this disagreement within the German administration about whether or not they're going to support Austria-Hungary in this fight. Yes, because basically, because King William Kaiser Wilhelm was on holiday and didn't get messages fast enough, and by the time he got <laughs> back his foreign office was like yeah we're at war now uh, and so his attempts to back out all were a little bit too little too late <laughs> yeah and then it ends up being germany kind of backing up austria hungary austria hungary what am i talking about austria hungary <laughs> and russia backing up the slavs in serbia and them going to war and then germany makes this bizarre decision that every book i've read just goes there's no logic in war <laughs> and there was no logic in what Germany did next. And they essentially, had it been that, it would have been a war that Britain never would have got involved in and France probably never would have got involved in. But Germany decided that if they went to war with Russia, because there is an ancient alliance between Russia and France, that France would get involved. So they thought, well, we can't go into Russia if France is going to get involved. So what we'll do is we'll take out France first. So we'll just surprise attack them. But in order to surprise attack France, they have to go across Belgium. And Belgium is just sitting there being like, I'm not having anything to do with this, lads. Like, leave me out of it. I'm not I'm not being in alliance with you. I'm not being in alliance with you. I just want to be bureaucratic and have some beer. Like, just leave me be. And Germany's response was, we're just going to cut through. Just nipping through with 
all of our tanks and all of our big stuff. And if we could just nip through and have a war on your border, that'd be grand. And unfortunately, this was just a, a bizarre decision because the one alliance that Belgium has is that if anybody invades them, Britain, with the world's biggest navy and the world's biggest army, will come and support them, which they did. <laughs> <laughs> And it's at that point, because then you've got France involved in the war and Britain involved in the war, who also have the hugest colonial empires spread across the world, across just unfathomable swathes of the world, that all of those borders between countries in Africa and Asia then become borders in a war that was, would not previously have been involved. Mm -hmm. If this had just been between Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary, cannot say that, or even just between France and Russia, it would have been a smaller thing. But because you then have enormous empires then everyone becomes involved yeah you've got soldiers coming from literally as far away as it's possible for them to be yeah namely new zealand as well as canada and australia and all the colonies in in uh, africa you've got india as well at this point so yeah this is what the british empire basically dragged the entire world into war pretty <laughs> well, much well yeah. done but um, yeah, and the reason, so that's the reason that everybody thinks that the Germans are the bad guys, because the Germans invaded Belgium, who were sitting doing nothing to nobody. But really, in order to explain it, and I've got books that are about four inches thick that go into like the unbearable detail, or you can watch four hour YouTube things, um, <laughs> which will explain it with maps and things, and they are interminable. <laughs> But that's like the basics. There was a fight over whether Serbia was part of Austria-Hungary or whether it was allowed to be its own country that escalated wildly. And then because people then tried to fight it like an old war with kind of ground troops and things, but with new technologies like enormous heavy mobile artillery and gas. <laughs> yeah. And also things like... Like one of the best, it's not really a narrative, it's first person account, is um, Stefan Zweig's account of being a part of the First World War. He travelled around in the Eastern Front, he was um, Austrian. I mean, he travelled around a lot on the Eastern Front on trains, and this is one thing that had never existed in a previous war, was the ability to mobilise massive amounts of troops really quickly in just a matter of days across to a new border, when previously it would have been weeks of marching. Like, the... Sure. The reason that the Napoleonic War, which is not dissimilar <laughs> um, in that it's a huge European war that drags on for years. <laughs> Anytime you wanted to get from one town to another, it takes weeks to march there. And now you can get there in a day on the train. And you also don't have to spend weeks marching backwards and forwards to do to send a, a message. If you need to get a message to a general somewhere, you've got the telegraph, which didn't exist before. So we've got fast travel, fast communication. We've got brutal weapons that can kill a huge amount of people very quickly. Yeah. And prevent and things like old wars. You used to have virtually everything I know about older wars comes from sharp books. But from what <laughs> I gather from sharp books is that you would use your artillery to just brutalise your enemy into a point where all of their defences had collapsed. And then you marched in and part of that would be taking out their artillery. But now everybody has enormous heavy artillery and it has long range artillery which means that you can now start brutalising your enemy before you even see them, <laughs> which yeah. means that they can never get close enough for anything else to happen. It's just two armies standing really far apart, brutalising <laughs> each other. <laughs> Rather than, like, crawling up with bayonets. Rather than crawling up with bayonets. That's why you've got no good hero stories like Sharp from the First World War, because... <laughs> Yeah, because you know what Sharp did? He had a massive sword and a bayonet, and he would they would like other people would brutalize, and then he would run in and brute, and then just go stab, 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 and then after four hours of stabbing, the battle would be over, and one person had lost, and one person had won. But if you don't run, if you stand until you can smell the garlic, and fire volley after volley, three rounds a minute, then they slow down. They stop, and then they run away. All you've got to do is stand and fire three rounds a minute. Now, you and I know you can fire three rounds a minute. But can you stand? And there's absolutely none of that in World War One. You just have a lot of brutalising, yeah. and then there'd be a battle, 
like the Somme, where they'd go, we're going to do one big push and we're just going to brutalise the hell and then we're going to run at them and we're going to go, come on, lads, it's exactly like Napoleon. And they would kind of run in and go, oh, there's still big guns coming at us. Um, we didn't destroy any of those guns yeah. at all, which is why everybody died. And it was just horrible. Yeah, a lot of people died. And this is also the first time, this is a national effort. It's not like you have the military who yeah. are mostly uh, like, you know, the second son of a gentleman who bought his way into a conscription because that's how you joined the military in the yes. olden days. You p- bought your way into a nice officer's position. Also learned that from Sharp. Um, um, I learned that they're, from Austin. <laughs> they're all rubbish in Sharp because the only good soldiers um, are those who work their way up through the ranks. But the, this war got so out of hand that it, there was national yep. conscription um, and you had ordinary boys being thrown. And I say boys advisedly because a lot of them were eight, like 18 years old, yep. often from working class backgrounds, legally obliged to join this war that they had no control over and then were being uh, commanded, again, by gentlemen who had bought their way into the army. Yes. Because that's what that was one of the respectable professions in the olden days. And this is like one of those... You've got two issues there, which is like the very big change in what the army is as a result of World War One, mm. um, and it stops being a respectable profession that you enter and starts being a profession that is more more like being a carpenter or something. It's more of a, a, a trade yes. than a than a profession like a lawyer, which is what it used to be. And also this idea of national and nationali- nationalism, and that is like surprisingly new. It's only been a, since about eighteen fifteen that you've started having nations making agreements with one another instead of having just kings making friends with one another. And then as soon as one king dies, that agreement is out the window, and you have to make another agreement with the next king. There's the idea of national borders that are, that are more permanent. Yeah. And the idea of agreements between the idea of even a country existing as a thing that then has people within it who all have a shared identity is a relatively new issue in 1914. And this is one of the first times that that gets like tested properly in a, in the field of war, where countries are fighting one another rather than the personal armies of kings fighting one another. There's quite a good story, which um, I want to say it's George the Fourth, who's the king. Uh, it's one of the Georges. They're all broadly similar. Um, <laughs> he's the king of England during World War One, and he was the grandson of Queen Victoria, who is also the grandmother of Kaiser Wilhelm II in Germany, who mm-hmm. is the cousin of the Tsar in Russia, And she's also related to the Habsburgs and she was also related through Albert to the Saxe-Cobergs in Belgium and virtually all of European aristocracy was related to uh, Queen Victoria. She was the grandmother of Europe and as it was all kicking off, George allegedly turned to his friend and just went, grandmother would never have let this happen. Because that's what diplomacy was back in the day. Like, Queen Victoria would, you know, send letters to people and be like, you absolutely will not. Uh, And you had these marital alliances between Mm -hmm. countries that would stop that from happening, which is why the Habsburgs were so disgustingly interbred, because they married to make sure that power stayed within, and why we had no British queens for a huge amount of time, because they were all French or Belgian, so that we could have an alliance with them, so that the French Mm -hmm. would never, never Attack attack us. Exactly. And so... You had the these was this was how diplomacy worked, and now that's not what diplomacy is anymore. It's not kings marrying uh, the daughter of somebody else in order to make sure that no war happens. It, there are mm-hmm. na- it's nationalism and it's borders and it's confusing. <laughs> But they do uh, respond to this by trying to make it less confusing for people. <laughs> and the method they use is mass communication and just basically wall-to-wall manipulation of the public discourse around the wall. <laughs> they are, well, I mean, I have to say, I mean, obviously not the racist bits that we're about to talk about, but I empathise with the decision to try and make it simpler. <laughs> <laughs> And just be like, you know what? The Germans are bad guys. This is how bad they are. And be just, you know, there's nothing complicated about this. Don't worry about it, lads. It's a, it's a, it's a moral war. It's, I promise, it's a moral war. And the Germans are the bad guys. And the Germans did a very similar thing where they a little less, a little less effectively to the point where uh, a few, a couple of decades later, Hitler was open in how, <laughs> how 
much he respected the British propaganda efforts of World War One. He yes. deliberately tried to mimic them when he was in the early days of the Nazi Party, to obviously great effect, as we know. Yeah, they were. It's a remarkable skill. Whoever they got to do that, you can look at. I mean, we'll put this in the show notes. The kind of examples of propaganda that are. I mean, they're not. <laughs> they're not subtle. They, in fact, it takes me back to that. You know, there's a Blackadder episode about the propaganda where. It Blackadder's painting, a painting of a terrible German, a terrible Hun who is raped and murdered a nun, and then the British Tommy comes and is appalled by what he sees, and that that's the kind of <laughs> propaganda that we're looking at. Like all we have to do is paint something heroic to appeal to the simple-minded Tommy. Over to you, Baldrick. <laughs> um, how about? A noble Tommy standing with a look of horror and disgust over the body of a murdered nun who's been brutally done over by a nasty old German. And, like, these stories of atrocities, like, huge stories. And there would be pamphlets which explain... So I'm looking at one now. This story was told by Harry Lauder to the Montreal Canadian Club that was given to him by his son, Captain Lauder, who gave his life for his country. The Germans had captured six men of the Black Watch. They stripped them naked, made them stand at attention through the cold night, and at dawn said, You swine, get back to your trenches. Then, as helpless, frozen and naked men, they stumbled over no man's land and they were mowed down by machine guns. This is culture, um, and culture is in German. And there's like just tons of these like, stories of what the Germans do when they catch people, what the Germans do to civilians, what the Germans do to bayonetting babies and, you know, raping nuns. And yeah. they are <laughs> not subtle. <laughs> um, they are monstrous and they are... And part of this derives from... Well, we, we do have a, a clash of cultures in that Germany was not a democracy at this time. It was a monarchy. The king technically was in charge of all decision making as advised by his cabinet, which was led by the chancellor. And they don't really have any form of democracy. And whereas in Britain, we had really just about discovered it. Uh, <laughs> um, we had, Britain uh, had ha, has a very, by that time, a very entrenched view of constitutional monarchy, where the monarch just is a figurehead. Um, mm -hmm. And France had only not that long ago had its revolution and they were at the time very invested in the idea of democracy and of people voting and of not being led around by kings and things like that so there is this cultural clash between them um, while yeah. obviously the Germans thought that portray the British as being decadent and stupid relying on mob rule rather than mm -hmm. personal brilliance yeah. <laughs> Once again, there are people who have dedicated their entire careers to not boiling it down to as simple as that. But <laughs> yeah, well, that's great, great for them. You but know. they're not we're, sexy, and we are. But this is where we also get the Bryce Commission, which was put in place to ostensibly investigate what the, how the Germans really were treating people. But after the war came under a lot of criticism for essentially being a load of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like I have... having not aggressively enough interrogated the situations they were looking into and, and not being uh, a reliable source of information. But at the time when it came out, it was very much seen as an official document that backed yeah. up the propaganda that people were being inundated with that the German soldiers were doing horrible things to these innocent, innocent Belgians. It's a bit like the sexed up dossier of 2003 of the <laughs> early 20th century The it's the weapons of mass destruction of its time Yeah. to make a ref cultural reference that is both timely and <laughs> and relevant <laughs> Yes, it, yeah. yeah, and in the notes that I'm looking at, Janina has just written, "What the fuck is up with the Bryce inquiry?" Yeah, <laughs> it, it, which is fair. Is that like the Bryce Commission? It seems to have been something that's continued to be debated throughout the last hundred years to the point where when I looked up the Wikipedia page for it, it was like, oh, this page has just been recently edited by someone who was full on everything in the Bryce Commission was true and accurate and detailed and that we shouldn't have criticised it at all, um, which I thought was hilarious. Um, <laughs> See, this is a fun thing a about this stuff, is that there are still people debating yeah, these issues. Yeah, and obviously we can't 
we can't aggressively look at with how accurate it was now because all the people are dead. We can't re-interview them. So it's looking at the historiography of it rather than the actual event itself. But, you know, most of the time in the years following, people were highly sceptical about its accuracy. Yes. Um, and in the context of what of the nationalist fervour that was being... And that nationalist fervor was incredibly effective. Like I live in North, so I live in Northern Ireland. I live in a very loyalist working class area, which was the area where the Ulster Volunteer Force, which later in the 1970s became a paramilitary group, but began life as a force which came together to go and fight together in uh, World War One and to fight for British values and to fight you know, in what they believed for completely voluntarily before conscription, what they believed was the right thing to be fighting for and to protect Britain from these semi-imaginary threats. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you, on my walk to work every day, I walk what is called the poppy trail now, which is because it has been somewhat manipulated by more modern nationalist interests. But there is a list of every single man that died um, at the Somme and it is huge. <laughs> it takes up, it's a mural that takes up a wall. It is, there are hundreds of names on it and these people yeah. were were taken into, and this is, this is something I think that I sh- struggled with and one of the reasons why I find all of that stuff about treaties and and then Germany did this and then... <laughs> so there are no people in these conversations. It's just countries as if countries have a life of their own. Um, right. And then Britain did this and then Belgium did this and there are people at the front of that. Yeah, and making those decisions on behalf yeah. of everyone else in the country. And, and then oh, 20 million people died in World War One. Yeah, it was such a cultural shock that that we still use language from it today to talk about stuff. Like we still say we're shell shocked by things because so mm-hmm. many people came back suffering from the horrors of what they had experienced that that entered cultural parlance as a way of talking about being horrified. Well, yeah, and this is a, this is a, an interesting thing that like not only is it these arbitrary people behind the names of Britain and France and Germany and what have you, it's people who are still like we said earlier sort of staging a war with old-fashioned tactics completely (laughs) unaware of what that means for the soldiers on the ground which is being under fire of shrapnel constantly it means being having mustard gas being poured at you all the time it means suffering from trench foot because you've had to suddenly dig a hole in the ground to escape the artillery fire that no one expected to be as devastating as it was it's so the ramifications on a personal level for the men on the ground is just so staggeringly out of the realm of 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 the consciousness of the men making the decisions about whether or not we kept fighting yeah yeah and it's astonishing reading about it how many points it feels like you so many books will say except at this point nobody was ready for peace and you just think who wasn't ready for peace i'm pretty sure Uh, people were ready for peace like just apparently the issues being debated were so much bigger than people in a way that had almost never existed before yeah the people get really lost in the way that people write and talk about world war one yeah because this is the thing about it that makes it so significant is that we know so much more about the personal impact of world war one than when we do about any wars that went before partly because it was more recent and record keeping was better and uh there you know there are newspapers and things but because there's a lot there's a lot going on there's there's how the war actually was when you were faced with it there is the fact that um it just despite whether or not you were conscripted or whether you volunteered uh, you had been inundated with this aggressive campaign of how britain and america and all of the allies were strong stalwart true right to just people wading in to help this innocent Belgium who was often personified as like a beautiful woman wearing white in distress mm-hmm. in the propaganda against an inherently evil army. Most of the men were really young and hadn't hadn't had a military experience before this and then got there to this brutal, brutal battleground whenever and whenever they did come across soldiers from the other lines, they found men as young and as scared and as emotionally like uninvested as they were themselves they found a mirror image of themselves on enemy lines yeah 
which then of course after the war led into a, like pretty much worldwide disillusionment which is where we get you know the existentialist art movement <laughs> of the 20s and 30s is where we get you know decline and fall yes that's <laughs> um, where because... you get i claudius in yeah. way because uh, Robert Graves was one of those many, many writers that was on the on the front lines and experienced those things, and that's where you get all of that World War One poetry that we all read, yeah. um, and all of those terrible. It's interesting because I read a book called "Remembering War: The Great War Between History and Memory in the Twentieth Century" um, by Jay Winter, which is about the idea of memory in the twentieth and twenty first century, and about how that almost began. With the First World War, it was so horrific, produced so much in the way of material culture and written culture that it it kind of invented the idea of remembering as a form of, of respect, that you are, by remembering things have to be remembered is a way to respect them, and that's how you end up with things like Armistice Day and all the rest of it. Yeah, so we're still kind of in the middle of propaganda. We waded off there for a while. We did, um, um, but propaganda was massive. And then... The biggest propaganda move of all time, the Lusitania, Mm -hmm. which brought the Americans into the war, and which is one of those things which I had always like the it's so successful (laughs) as a campaign that until extremely recently I did believe that it was the sinking of an innocent ship, yeah, and that it was an evil German act to bomb the Americans basically. (laughs) Yeah, like they found just a random passenger vessel. Yeah, and just just picked on it. But the in the way that you know, Pearl, it was the Pearl Harbor of World War One, mm-hmm. and that is very much because that's how it was portrayed and unbelievably effectively portrayed as being these innocents, and a lot of innocents died in it. But it is now conclusively proved, as far as I'm aware, that it was carrying military weapons that the U.S. was using civilian ships to transport weapons where they were absolutely not allowed to and it was trespassing into places where they had definitely promised that they would not go yeah and and they hadn't told my understanding is they hadn't told the british that they or in this particular case they had not disclosed to the british that there were weapons on this ship yes and the germans warned them and were like can you not do that actually (laughs) we are in a period of war and we will have to use wartime tactics and they're like "Mm, hear what you're saying but gonna keep going yeah and like as a propaganda tool though that is so they highlighted the deaths of civilians they massively highlighted the fact that they were not technically involved in the war and the british took huge advantage of it as well and you know look how evil the germans are that they were just attacking random civilian ship and it's not until decades later you know the truth was known long before i was born (laughs) and yet still i grew up with this idea that the lusitania was a war crime yeah when i mean it obviously was gonna put it as a non-ideal box yeah rather than the war crime box there's no good guys necessarily in this situation but definitely wasn't a attack out of nowhere on it on a purely passenger vehicle, which is what it often is spoken about as. It is interesting as well that even then, it did take a couple of years for the for the US to join the war after the Lusitania was sunk, yeah. because they just Woodrow Wilson faffed around for a bit. <laughs> well, he really didn't want to get involved, which <laughs> yeah. is fair. Like, which is fair, it was horrible. I can totally see why you would be looking at it up to, because when's the song? 1916, and watching those things happen and just go, mm, probably all right. <laughs> actually yeah <laughs> and it is not, a very not for me yeah and it is a very because it is a european war if it wasn't for the fact that so much of europe now militarily dominated the world as a result of the imperialist project of the past couple of centuries then it would have been one of the many european battles over who gets to own what bit of land that mm-hmm. had been going on since 1066 yeah like that that's what europe does it battles over who owns what it's what happens because it's not very big but there's a lot of people (laughs) and if it wasn't for the combination of nationalism military technology and imperialism that's what it would have been but those three things perfectly coming together mean that it ends up one covering the whole world two killing a lot of people and getting nowhere um Mm -hmm. and three being about something I related to identity which had never happened yes. before 
which meant that no, nobody was ready for peace at like six different times when otherwise <laughs> they would have been totally ready for peace. And certainly the Americans would never have been getting involved in a war happening thousands of miles away. Yeah, that didn't really involve, it didn't involve anything or affect to do with them. <laughs> if it wasn't for what was it, the beginnings of globalised trade, which come from, you know, it was affecting their trade stuff. It was affecting their people who were travelling around the world, mm-hmm. who was affecting their civilians. And, and it was beginning to affect them in a way that no other war ever would have which is what makes it a world war instead of just a tedious european scuffle like the napoleonic wars (laughs) sorry napoleonic people (laughs) but you know no nobody's like oh i wonder what the napoleonic wars were about because we all know what the napoleonic wars were about they're about france wanting to own a bit more stuff yeah and nobody wonders, you know, what were what was 1066 all about? Wonder what was happening there. It was about France wanting to own more stuff. This makes it sound like the French were the bad guys previously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, as, but it's not like every other country wasn't getting involved in starting wars. And that's what it otherwise would have been. It would have been like, oh, you know, Germany wants a bit more stuff. But it became about other things and then it rippled to affect other people in a way that is brand new and really frightening (laughs) yeah because it's so hard and i can't imagine how frightening it must have been and i really do recommend to everybody stefan zweig's world of yesterday because he is one of these extremely liberal european intelligentsia who fundamentally sees himself as a european and he writes this amazing bit about the introduction of passports and how he thinks they're they're fundamentally dehumanizing because Mm -hmm. he just thinks that the concept of borders is so ridiculous he's so eloquent in the way that he writes about his growing up in Vienna and about his experiences as a, a writer traveling around Europe and he meets a lot of great people like and then I hung out with James Joyce but he is so confused when he writes about the beginning of war so he wrote it in the late 30s his memoir um, and then killed himself in the early 1940s with his wife <laughs> because he saw World War II as being the triumph of fascism and he couldn't understand he couldn't see a way in which fascism didn't win essentially so um, right. he killed himself I mean maybe he was right if he was <laughs> what was like now yeah I read um, World of Yesterday just prior to the Brexit vote at the time I was thinking he'd probably really enjoy the European Union like he would think it was a wonderful wonderful thing Mm -hmm. being able to cross borders you know with ease and being able to work collaboratively with people and being able to see oneself Mm -hmm. as a european rather than being a member of a nation but then then brexit happened like three months later i was like oh maybe not But, but he is so baffled by what happens and he literally just says, if today, thinking over calmly, we wonder why European went to war in 1914, there is not one sensible reason to be found, nor even any real occasion for a war. <laughs> I can explain it only by thinking that the excess of power, by seeing that it is a tragic consequence of internal dynamism that has built up during 40 years of peace and now demanded a release. Every state suddenly felt that it was strong and forgot that other states felt exactly the same. Yeah, and but he's just yeah. kind of baffled by it and he lived through it and it just must have been so frightening and so out of the blue. And yeah, to have... In the same way that I'm going back to Iraq here, but I distinctly remember in 2000, like 2002, when all of that weapons of mass destruction started and everyone started mm-hmm. banging on about Saddam Hussein for the first time since the 90s. I distinctly remember being with my boyfriend at the time, being like, do you understand what's happening? Like, why are we suddenly... He's been the same since yeah. I was in primary school. Do you understand what, what, why this is, why we're talking about this? And him going... No. (laughs) And we were just completely confused about what was happening. And the more news we read about the situation, the less we understood it. And I feel like the beginning of World War One must have felt the same to everybody. Like, do you know why we're going to war? No, I haven't got it. Oh, the Germans are the bad guys. Okay. Right. Yeah. It is a very impressive thing how how quickly and comprehensively it became an idealistic war. Yeah. When it was not that at all at all on any level yeah and there's nothing in the beginnings of it that can call it even as a nationalistic war it's not really no it's just confusing but it forms national identities and you know we still as an an english person you still feel that poppies are such a massive part of national identity to a certain extent of celebrating our boys and completely and there's there's even still a pressure i think to celebrate them as 
as men who and women who died for their country for a cause for their country for something that is noble and worthwhile um when they absolutely did not they were sent to slaughter for the sake of a tiny invasion yeah for such complicated reasons Uh, (laughs) such for for complicated and baffling and just irrational reasons it feels like yeah it's just so big i think but then this is another thing which is that we also have this tendency to see world war ii as though it were that when really world war ii started in exactly the same way it starts with germany crossing a border that they weren't allowed to cross it, it, and after they had sort of got themselves a reputation yeah. as a country that would do that and that would fight a you know a brutal war for the sake of it yeah and you know the re- half the reason why you get that whole appeasement stuff with Czechoslovakia is that world war 1 had upset everybody so much that they didn't want to do it again yeah but understandable yeah <laughs> but you in you know the reason that World War One started was that Germany invaded Belgium because of a series of complicated alliances and then everybody was in. And the reason that World War Two started was that Germany invaded Poland and because of a series of complicated alliances, everybody was in. And then mm-hmm. later, afterwards, we found out the true extent of everything that Nazism entailed. Yeah, And it's not like a lot of that, you know, the beginning stuff in the run-up was not a huge secret to anybody, but the the extent of it and the concentration camps were were something that changed the flavour of what World War II was. Yeah, and it is like, I mean, it's a topic for another time, yeah. but it is an interesting thing where anti-Semitism was as rife every, everywhere else as it was in Germany. Yes. And it was really the discovery of what the Nazis were doing that led to that being a, sig- a, sig- a signifier of yeah. evil intent as well. Sorry, I stumbled over that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is a because of what we found out at the end of the war that colours all memory of the Second World War. And then because this is the First World War has what seems to be <laughs> similar goodies yeah, and baddies. Yeah, it has... You know, it is us versus it's Britain and France against the Germans. Yeah, and 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 there is a lot. There's a lot of direct connection as well in that, like the reason Britain started gently nudging towards the idea of war was that Germany was breaking its treaty yeah. agreement. Like it was rearming itself when it had promised not to, which doesn't look great when you've just been the aggressor in a major war <laughs> but then we're back to nationalism and national pride we are. Um, exactly and that right. idea that they had been deliberately humiliated but then now we're into world war ii and we're not going to talk about world war ii as a topic for another day <laughs> but we it is very hard i think to look at from the perspective of being non-experts and from the perspective of, of of lay people dealing with cultural representations and pop cultural representations of World War One and Two, to look at it without being influenced by World War Two, see what World One actually is, and it's important. It is important because it's how it has such an impact on what is happening in our country today. Yeah. Well, in my, in my You're adopted, adopted country, country. because that that nationalist pride that started with this propaganda was kind of weaponized shall we say by this propaganda that nationalist pride is what has led to things like the brexit yeah you know it's what has led to the rise in right-wing thinking today and it's all founded on this flimsy flimsy base both here and in the states and we are used to thinking of ourselves as the good guys in this inherently black and white good versus evil couple of wars and that's just not the case at all no and that blurs then how you can understand how they began because you think there has to be some kind of bad guy incident mm-hmm. it doesn't help i don't think having a lot a lot of superhero films and things which are and this is the bad guy and they dress in black and they have a long flowing cape and they say ah ha 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 <laughs> i shall destroy the world and this is the good guy he has long yes. flowing hair um and he will say no we shall defend the innocent um, and <laughs> which is an interesting state of affairs in and of itself because the very first comic books were written by jewish men yeah. living in america 
in, in the forties, right? In the <laughs> yeah, in the thirties and forties, and who were desperately trying to feel like there were good yeah. guys that were going to fight the bad guys because of what was happening to them in Europe, and that's significant as well. But uh, yeah, there should be more room to to explore the fact that not all good guys are good, and not no, all bad guys there, are there right. is no good and evil. There is not in World there War One, um, like no conflicting goals and ideals in that. Yeah, this isn't talking about innocence being crushed under the heel of a single oppressor. This no. is talking... A clusterfuck. It's a clusterfuck. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and it... and the thing is, it is it is something that seeps into pop culture a lot. Like, I, I promised you that I would talk about the origin story you of Hook. You did Poirot. promise me you would tell me about Poirot. Um, and if you don't, then I'm just going to make you do it at the end. So... <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it now because I do think that it's 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 okay. relevant. I think it's a relevant example of this um, passing of wars via the media of pop culture that then retroactively influences how we see yeah. them. Because the first uh, appearance of Hercule Poirot is in the mysterious affair at Styles, yep. Agatha Christie. If you didn't know Poirot was Agatha Christie, <laughs> he is. He um, is a Belgian where... detective, an ex-policeman from Belgium. Who then spends his retirement kind of pootling around the world and might a lot in England, but also like hanging around in Egypt um, and pootling yep, around on the Orient Express and getting on trains in Iraq and solving murders. <laughs> solving lots of murders. Uh, but the first one, it's the first, it's a very war book, Mysterious Affair at mm-hmm. Styles. So its main character uh, and narrator is Captain Hastings who has come home from the war with an injury. He's got a very John Watson-like limp. Yep. And he's living in this small town, visiting a friend of his who lives in like the, the town's big manor house, where like the daughter of that house is working in a dispensary, because that's a thing that, that young women did during yep. the war, is that they became chemists, including Agatha Christie, actually, um, which is where she learned so much How about poison. she poisons. knows so much, like a lot about <laughs> Um, but in this village, at the time, there is a group of Belgian refugees, and they are the whole village treats them with such pity because they've fled the yep. horrors of being so persecuted and brutalised by big, big, bad German soldiers. And one of the Belgian refugees is Hercule Poirot, uh, who Hastings just stumbles across, and there, then there is a murder, and it's a murder mystery. <laughs> but that's that is his origin is is a, a refugee from this war where he where his country was the victim, Germany was the villain, and Britain were the heroes. Yeah, and they're protecting that's these. The dynamic that he starts with pathetic, like can't look after themselves yeah. refugees who are all living in little hotels in small English villages. Yeah, in small English villages. So what's that conclusion? What was World War One all about? It was about a lot. Yeah, it was about a lot, but mainly no one had settled on who should own which bit of Europe to the to everyone's satisfaction. Yeah, and I feel like though we still don't. Again, I live in Northern Ireland, and there's an ongoing discussion about who owns this particular <laughs> bit of Europe that I live on. Like this, yeah. Who specifically out of two countries owns the house that I live in? In the end, I, I I'm gonna, just going to go back to Stefan Zweig again because I just want everybody to read this wonderful book. And in the end. I feel like his every state suddenly felt that it was strong and forgot that other states felt exactly the same after mm-hmm. what was comparatively an enormous amount of peace in Europe. Mm-hmm. The 40 years of nobody invading anybody was a very too, long time. too much to deal with. It's like having a pimple building up under your skin. Exactly. Or, yeah, or like when you've, I don't know, not had some cheese for a really long time and it gets <sighs> to the point where you're just dreaming about cheese. So World War One just... Just someone binging on cheese. Someone binging on cheese, except cheese is the slaughter of 20 million people. Yeah. (laughs) It's not my best analogy. No. But, you know, it's what we've got. We work with what we have. It's what I've ended up with. What we have is cheese. I don't even have your excuse of not having slept properly. (laughs) So, at the end of the day, we have a war that was about borders and... The colonialism wanting, and colonialism and a display wanting to have a display of strength and be in charge of who had what and in the end became about manipulating nationalism and painting everything with very broad strokes and in very specific lights to the yeah. detriment of all yeah and everyone lost really everyone lost 
There were no. This is another other thing about World War One. There were no. There was no great victory. It's just everybody was so. This is why it ends up being an armistice. It's not like a victory, a parade across anything. It just is a. We can't do for, this anymore. We have finally reached the point where we are ready for peace. Um, yeah. And <laughs> and it like set the stage for another war to start a couple of decades down the line. So it really was the least victorious war that it had ever been. <laughs> Although I, I mean, d- did read I one book. Obviously I don't know that book. to be true. That's a- <laughs> I did read one book which is titled A Perfidious Distortion of History, which is an absolutely brilliant title for a book, which his arg- main argument is that. So the argument for that World War One started World War Two is that the Versailles Treaty so abused Germany by putting such enormous sanctions on them that they had it was almost inevitable that they would eventually have to fight back it was like an economic curse really yeah and you know and and such things as hyperinflation and the extreme restrictions that were placed on them with such as not being allowed to have any kind of military were, were so enormous that they it was a it was almost inevitable that their pride would be so bruised that they would have to put on some kind of display and thus world war Two. yeah and the argument is that that's nonsense and that it is indeed a perfidious distortion of history uh, well this is the thing all history is distorted because it was all written within an ad- with an agenda it was all written with an agenda that's also good if i don't know it um, yeah <laughs> no this is a great thing about being a historian is that it's an unsolvable puzzle that has no answers so you can just keep going forever <laughs> there will never be a point where you go well that's history finished <laughs> uh, we've done it all lads we've done it <laughs> so what you're saying is we can we've committed to this podcast so we can never die we can never die we're gonna have to be 98 and doing it in our home <laughs> by that time we'll be like holograms or something or we've we'll yeah. been uploaded into the machine like and in no the next one will episode and listen to podcasts the information will just be planted in your brain yeah or it will come in through like contact lenses like so you have like a yeah. screen on all time or something i don't like we need to stop and i've already seen too many episodes of black mirror oh really in my life i just read a lot of science fiction books and they're really into putting contact lenses in eyes for some reason that have that then have like any kind of you control the computer with your eye movements i mean stuff. i wore contact lenses for a decade that does not sound worth it no i don't wear contact lenses um one because my face looks weird without glasses on and two because sometimes you fall asleep with them in and it really hurts it really really hurts i have to do (laughs) plays under hot stage lights with contact lenses in that really hurts too i can imagine i eventually stopped wearing them when i got drunk and uh, tried to remove a contact lens i did not have in And it was about 40 minutes of just trying to essentially pull off my own cornea. <laughs> it's very painful. Yeah, that's not, that's not good. Don't drink in contact lens. <laughs> okay, so that's World War One. complicated. Uh, hopefully we've made it unboring, though. I don't know that we made it sexy. Unless you find, like, the idea of hulking Huns over dead bodies particularly sexy. Or, like, evil propagandists, I'm not sure. I mean, we've been on the internet, we know there's a kink for everything. There is 100% a Rule 34 for this somehow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and next time... So this is what we wanted to do, really, which is have other people ask us questions. And these first two, we've asked our own questions of just ones that interest us. But we have our first listener question, which is from a friend of ours called Tim Mm -hmm. who has a good beard and some good dogs he does have a good beard and some good dogs well done Tim yeah and a good wife too Um, (laughs) and he sent us our first question which was before Scott and Charlene tied the knot in 1987 did anyone marry for love I mean I had to google who Scott and Charlene were what you're the antipodean amongst us I was relying on you for episode three to explain this okay well I will be explaining you'll be explaining Scott and Charlene (laughs) don't google it before episode three because we will explain (laughs) who they are so we're going to be talking about the history of marrying for love which is great because I'm almost an expert on that again so I'll be doing less I don't know the Germans or something (laughs) (laughs) but I will be doing the same amount of that because I'm an expert in nothing not even neighbours, Jesus Christ. Not even neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to ask us a question, you can tweet us. You can. At 
sexy history pod yes or you can email us now at sexyhistorypod at gmail.com or you can tweet me at, at nuclear tea and you can tweet me at j9 and if there you go and yeah episode three in two weeks yeah that's all the things we have to say it's all the things we have to say and look, what listen to janina's it turns out a clusterfuck was the deal with world war one <sighs> complicated man yeah. complicated all right bye janina bye emma